Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. All right. Hi, everybody. I have a long list of things to go over here. A great deal of things, including some sort of on-the-ground analysis of of what's going on and some observations as to what's going on within some of these K-12 schools all across the nation here, specifically, however, in Louisiana. And I'm going to get to that a little bit later. Um, A couple of jab-related things very briefly. And again, the decline of enrollment in K-12 schools is going to be a great deal of this also. So first of all, however, I want to mention just a couple of things. I don't really talk about this often, but I do have a store that just has t-shirts, mugs, and things like that. You can check that out on my website. I've got a bunch of different new t-shirts on there now. Again, I don't make a living off of it. I hardly sell any of it. But I've got a Kill Your Television t-shirt. I've got a homeschool t-shirt. Very simple messages, straight and to the point. Pretty cheap, I think. But anyway, just wanted to mention that if you're interested in going over there and picking one up, uh, it would be greatly appreciated. Anyway, moving on here. First of all, last week, there was more Uvalde nonsense. And I wanted to just briefly mention that quickly here. And if you've seen the video, it is absurd. Um, First of all, this comes from MySanAntonio.com, and it's titled, Uvalde Police Held Back Officer Whose Wife Was in the Classroom with the Gunman. Now, if you've seen this video, this was Officer Ruben Ruiz, apparently, whose wife, allegedly, Eva Morellis was the teacher still inside the classroom with the gunman on May 24th. This was apparently the person who called her husband and said, I've been shot and I'm dying. Okay. In the video, which is from chest camera, from the police officer's chest camera, you can see him walk up to the police and say, his fellow officers allegedly, and say, my wife says she's been shot, or she said she's shot. And then they basically said, get back, get back. And then he was like, okay. And then he just turns around and casually walks away. Again, the question I have for you is this, because we know that no one died and there's no way you would breach a door with actors on the inside exposing the actors on the inside, or even worse, open the door and no one is on the inside, which is likely the case in this scenario. Or again, that it was just a drill and they were actually inside, but there was no gunman on the inside. Something along those lines. My point is this. If your wife was being shot or had been shot and was dying on the other side of the door, Would you just casually turn around and walk away from police officers who told you to just turn around and walk away as you yourself are a gun-carrying police officer? Of course not, because no logical person would do that, unless, of course, you wanted your wife dead and there was a real shooting and, you know, you weren't fond of her because, I don't know, some reason. Other than that, most people would be punching police officers in the face to get to their actual wife who was in harm's way. That's what real men would do. Not so in this case. Not because he wasn't a quote-unquote real man. Clearly he wasn't because he's an actor and he's playing along with his entire charade. Uh, But it's evident, again, that these are actors and that this was a drill 
that was scripted right down to specific scenarios and personal stories and all of this other stuff that they had to catch on camera in real time. Again, in the past, like with Sandy Hook, there were scripts and scenarios, but nothing to, nothing this detailed to the point where they actually had it on camera because with Sandy Hook, they just used the media to be their bullhorn. They still have the media as their bullhorn in this Uvalde hoax, but at the same time here with this, you have something different, which is they've just kicked up their scripting another notch with the security cameras and the chess cameras and all this other stuff. And then this one guy, Ruiz, Ruben Ruiz, just randomly walks in and goes, hey, my wife's in there. She says she's shot. And they're like, take it easy, bro. And then he, again, just casually turns around and walks away. They're kicking it up with all of those different scenarios because, again, they have to do whatever they can to trick the non-thinking person into believing that something happened here when clearly it did not. So that's it. That's Uvalde. Um, I still have questions again about the Texas State Committee in their Texas government that apparently reviewed some of this material. Why have we still not seen chess camera footage from inside the classroom then? We're getting closer. I mean, are we not? We're getting closer and closer. We're getting closer to the door. We're getting closer to them actually having to breach the door. Why have we not seen any of that on actual camera? Why have, they, we, why have we not actually seen them lethally shoot said shooter with dead children bodies laying around? Can you not blur all of that out? You probably could, but we still haven't seen that footage is my ultimate point. So the more footage they show us, it doesn't legitimize their false story is what I'm trying to say. It just exposes more of it, for the, certainly for the thinking person. For the irrational person who's not thinking and doesn't believe the depths of evil, that evil can actually drop themselves to, uh, it's, it's not doing anything for them other than getting them to believe the lie even more. So that's all I wanted to say about Uvalde. Okay. There's another thing going on here, which I haven't made mention of, uh, but I'm going to now, and it's the Nicholas Cruz trial for his sentencing for the Parkland shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Uh, this is turning out to be accurate from what I can tell. Again, you know my wavelength of thought on this, that I have to start off with it didn't happen, it's a hoax, and that's usually because of the blatant coordinated media response that takes place as soon as the shooting takes place or alleged shooting takes place. What leads me to believe that this actually happened and that the likely scenario is the following, that Nicholas Cruz was either MK altered to the bone. He's clearly not well. That's beyond evident. He's clearly been brainwashed. That's beyond evident. Would he be capable of something like this? Yes. Without assistance? I don't know. He certainly received brainwashing assistance from someone in a mental hospital at some point, or encouragement from the FBI, CIA, whatever else. That's my estimation. What makes me believe, again, that this actually happened within the freshman building was that during this sentencing hearing slash trial, because he's already pled guilty, 
to 17 counts of murder and whatever else. That the people testifying are visibly nervous. They are visibly shaken. They're visibly upset. And the parents who are there with their children, who are now in college, many of them, who were witnesses to this or even victims of it themselves, and they're showing wounds, actual wounds on their body and, and whatever else, um, they are crying in the audience. And they are, they're not acting. These are actual people that are visibly upset. We're, we're, again, I don't think we're talking about crisis actors here, because if you compare it, excuse me, if you compare it to Uvalde, it's, it's night and day when it comes to the differences between them. In Uvalde, you have no tears whatsoever. You have nobody, nobody shaking and crying. You have, you have none of that. They're very still, not a single tear. You know, oh, this is just awful. They're even smiling in many cases. Whereas with this Nicholas Cruz thing, it is not the case. With that said, that does not mean that the media itself didn't know that this was going to happen behind the scenes, and they didn't know that they had to coordinate all of this and coordinate the said response, because they did. If you recall the Parkland stuff with David Hogg and that group of ruffians and you know that motley crew of, of high school students, allegedly, who all went to that building, none of them were freshmen, which means they weren't in the freshman building when this was taking place. But they had clearly received orders, and David Hogg's dad is apparently a member of the FBI, that they had all received orders to basically be at the forefront of what went on there for an attempted gun grab nationwide. And of course, they're all grifters, and they sought to make money off of it in XYZ, which I'm sure they did. That doesn't mean that people didn't die, though, which is why the word and phrase false flag carries with it many scenarios and many definitions. It is purposely designed, again, like the pirate ships. They raise a flag, they draw, they draw innocent people in thinking that they are friendly, and then they are not, and then something happens. So in false flags, people can certainly die, and they do, but the story that gets told and the people telling it and what their motives are, that can all be coordinated. They can be separate things, but still intertwined behind the scenes for people like us to not fully see the entire scope of the picture. So do I think Nicholas Cruz killed people? I do. He's remarkably violent. I even saw footage of him uh, inside of the jail where he attacked a, uh, a, a jail guard. I mean, he went after this guy, and, and he clearly seems to be schizophrenic to say the least. He flies off the handle in, in one regard, and then he's remarkably calm and apologizing the very next. So he's basically, from what I can tell, a uh, MK altered shooter of some kind. But again, did he do all of it on his own inside of the building, or were there multiple shooters? That I don't know. I just don't know that. I wouldn't doubt if there were multiple shooters. Nothing surprises me at this point. But I wanted to bring that up because that is something that's happening. Um, you can even pay attention to that on YouTube. That's bouncing around YouTube right now. And there you go. Uh, the let's see, what's the other, the other one going around? The Crumbly case. 
I'm uh, as I've said in the past, I'm going to briefly discuss and bring up and certainly watch as much as I can the Crumbly parents and their trial, which is set to start in October. I'm going to cover that here as best I can. I think the timing of that is interesting because you know that the media is going to be covering that as opposed to maybe other things, in particular right before the election, uh, midterm election. But um, this is, I mean, that is beyond a show trial, in, in my professional opinion. They clearly want our guns. They even, even these pseudo prosecutors and, and uh, TV lawyers are saying that there's no precedent for this when it comes to trying parents for a quote unquote school shooting uh, where children died and they're blaming the parents for all of this. Um, I, I think it's going to be very hard to prove it, although if the, if again, we know it's all corrupt up to this point. The judge is corrupt. We know the prosecution is completely corrupt. They're probably Soros bought off. They need something like this in order to then go after parents in the future so that when they even manufacture a shooting that could be 100% fake, if they convince the parents that their dead child did something, then they end up locking up the parents and then going after the gun companies and so on and so forth. So. This is a slippery slope, but that's that's what they want. They want a slippery slope, and they want all of us to stand on it and then fall for it. I I I, uh, I still to this day cannot believe that they are on trial. But then again, that's the judicial system in our country, and that's corruption, and that's the way it goes. Okay, moving on. Um. This next one was sent to me by Jesse James from the Dangerous Info Podcast, and this article, again, about K-12 schools and enrollment and educators leaving and a number of other things, that giant basket of hilarity that's occurring right now, this, is, this exemplifies the problem on on many different levels because the excuses that teachers are using for why they're leaving aren't telling the whole story and they're leaving out again a lot of the mask abuse and the shot pressure and the bioweapon and the, all of that stuff because again they've got to they've got to bring out that old saw and use that old saw of well it's an unprofessional environment and us teachers aren't being listened to and you know, it's administrative inconsistency and a lack of discipline and whatever else. They have to say that because they can't say the reason we're leaving is because we're sick. Because 90% of us took these shots and now we're remarkably ill. And we don't want to enter an ill environment where people might be sick. Again, the brainwashing has so many levels here that it's next to impossible to find a place to start with these people. But this is why I have directly related this to a cult now. And it is, in fact, a cult. But I want to get into this here. And it's kind of a lengthy article, but it's worth it. Um, it is it's from the Emporia Gazette, emporiagazette.com. It's titled, Former USD... 500 and I'm sorry, 253 educators explain decisions to resign. And this came from July 23rd. It says the following 
Quote, the teacher shortage is hitting Kansas hard with 1,381 vacancies in the state as of spring 2022, according to the Kansas Department of Education. Emporia Public Schools has also been heavily affected with over 70 open positions according to number to numbers the district published Tuesday. The vacancies came after USD 253 experienced record resignations in the past school year. The district reported more than 40 resignations since April 3rd in the agenda of its special meeting Thursday, where board members voted against pausing William Allen White Elementary due to staffing shortages. They paused the entire school. I mean, let that sink in. We don't have enough teachers to have students in this school. Ergo, we, we have to close it, quote-unquote, temporarily, or pause it. This is the beginning of the end. And, ladies and gentlemen, as I've said before, I'm going to keep reading this article, but bear with me. As hard as this is going to be for many people who work within these industries, what is on the other side of the collapse of American education as we know it, this giant experiment called K-12 education within brick-and-mortar buildings, when this is over, what is on the other side of that green hill is going to be amazing. It will be. There's no other, there's no, it can't possibly get better than the collapse and then the phoenix rising, so to speak, because it will. But it will be homeschooling and a bunch of other things, which again is going to breed independence, and that's going to be a good thing. Morality, hopefully. Okay. Uh, let's see. It says, Due to staffing shortages and instead granted the superintendent full authority to explore staffing options for the district. That's not going to be good either because they're going to end up hiring people who are not qualified. And they'll ask the State Department of Education for assistance in that regard and they will be given it maybe. That'll, time will tell on that. It continues. It says, Allison Anderson Harder. USD 253 superintendent said the reason behind the resignations was largely due to accountability from principals and student behavior. Bullshit. She said, quote, the biggest theme was that accountability from principals, Anderson Harden told the, Gazette's thurs told the Gazette Thursday evening. Quote, there were some staff members that were really frustrated because they felt that staff members, dot, 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 some were given other privileges that others weren't, or that maybe student behavior wasn't as addressed, kind of depending on different situations. Well, first of all, if that's a direct quote, this superintendent uh, sounds like a fool. Second of that's not how I read it. That's actually what they said. Um, again, second of all, that's a lie. Blaming students, blaming a lack of parent, uh, parental support, blaming inconsistency are all scapegoats for what's really going on here. It's, it's all the things I've mentioned in the past. Uh, it's, it's getting exhausting bringing it up on a consistent basis, but you know what they are now. 
It continues. It says, Anderson Hardin said, the district has been working with principals, student support specialists, and counselors to help remedy the situation. For example, she said the district is providing evaluation recommendations on improvements principals can make, such as making sure there is consistency in lesson planning and grading practices. That's cover for all of the Marxist degenerate uh, instruction that's taking place. That has a lot to do with it, too. But they're saying, well, we need consistency. So what kind of consistency are they after? uh, Moral consistency or immoral consistency? They then said, uh, we take all of that very seriously when we know that those are problems that we address them, she said. This is not a very literate person. Good Lord. Uh, It continues, a handful of educators who resigned within the past school year said their biggest problems were with the district and school leadership, lack of support in the classroom, and a lack of child care in the community. Let's take that first example that they just said. Biggest problems were with the district and school leadership. Why? See, that's what's not being answered in any of this. These superintendents are attempting to pick up mercury with a fork. Every single time, they're working very hard to try to cover for the real reasons why they are leaving. Mask wearing, shot taking, child abuse, etc., etc., etc. Those are the reasons. They've abused children firsthand in front of everyone's face for the last two and a half years now. And now they're saying, well, they just don't like us. Uh, It's a little more than that, a little deeper. It says, quote, I personally chose to resign because I don't like the direction the school district is going in with the superintendent. Jennifer Daines, a former kindergarten teacher at Timmerman Elementary, told the Gazette. In December, Daines said Anderson Harden gave teachers a chance to speak about the district and what they would like to change. That's, (laughs) wow, that's a trap, ladies and gentlemen. Anytime an administrator in a K-12 school district asks for input from teachers, even if they say it's anonymous input, that will make it anonymous and there's no way we can find out. Bullshit. They know exactly who says what, when, and how. They can trace it right back to a computer. They can trace that signal right back into your classroom. Even if you're using a personal computer on their Wi-Fi system, they'll know it's you. They always know who says what about what administrator. My recommendation, if you're still in the business, don't ever take an evaluation that is given to you by an administrator. Don't ever do it, because they will know who it is that filled out the evaluation, and then, of course, they'll use it against you, because they always do. Uh, It says, quote, A lot of teachers didn't take the opportunity to do it because they were afraid that they would lose their job. See what I mean? That was the very next quote. She continued, I went and I talked to her about things that were going on in the district, and it kind of just felt like from them that I feel like the blame was being put on teachers. Of course, because that's what happens in a moral envi- in an immoral environment. The finger pointing. It's com- common practice. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Everybody's just blaming one another. That's what happens when no one knows what the truth is. Danes said throughout her years of teaching, she felt she received less respect and more responsibilities every year. Quote, I feel like teachers are definitely 
definitely every year. Wow, these teachers—they can't talk. They, you know, re- reading what they what they are saying is hard. It's just hard. It says, I'm, I'm not making this up. It says, quote, I feel like teachers are definitely every year like more and more is being asked of them with less and less support. There's no pay increase. Getting quality para support is so hard to find and it just makes for very stressful years, Danes said. How about you just do your job? But again, your job is now the plight of an immoral person and one who has to sanction child abuse. So there's that. It continues, it says, as a ninth-year teacher, Danes made $43,000 last year, a salary she said was hard to live on in Emporia. Danes also has three children who will be attending Emporia Public Schools in the fall. I was kind of sad to leave because I love the families that I worked with, she said. The parents where I taught really had teachers' backs, but I don't know if that's the case everywhere. Transparency is great, and I think that they get that at the school level. I just don't feel like they get that at the district level. Quote, I think the trend will continue as long as teachers are being treated the way that they've been for the lack of support and resources and funds and things like that, Danes continued. Until there is a correct amount of support, I think the teacher shortage is just going to keep happening because people will get tired of spending their own money. Uh, Lacey Brokaw, a former first grade teacher at Logan Avenue Elementary, resigned after being unable to find childcare. Ah, uh, that that old saw too. My God. Wow. It's she said, quote, uh, so we found out that we were pregnant last year in October, and I know how dire it is. Blah, okay. I'm gonna skip ahead here. I'm skipping past that because, you know. Personal familial things, that's, that's, that's so far down the real reasons why people are leaving. I mean, yes, that's a reason. You know, some people get married, uh, the husband's job location changes, and then they end up leaving the school. That's one thing. You know, they end up getting pregnant, they have a child, they take care of the child, they stay home, and then they say, I want to stay home with my child, and God bless them for doing that. And then, of course, they end up saying that they're leaving. The problems here are far bigger, though, and it gets into it a little bit here. It says, quote, historically, Emporia has been a, the cutting edge of the cutting edge. I bet, I bet they have. Uh, she continued and said, it's, be, it's been difficult to gain employment by USD 253 because it's so competitive to get in. And now we saw the openings in late July for positions. People don't want to come here like they used to. We couldn't. We didn't retain a lot of our interns like we used to from the university. Hmm, the university connection. Not finding them from the university? Why would that be? Could it be that teacher education programs are starting to fold because more people don't want to enter this business? Could it be because they're jabbed to the bone because they had to attend a university to be jabbed to the bone or the other way around, they had to be jabbed to the bone to attend a university and now they're sick and or dead. It continued and said, personally, I didn't feel like there was residual like COVID stress this year. 
it pretty much went back to normal. For me and my experience, it was the change in leadership that contributed to 100% of this, the stress that I experienced this year. Take that quote, I mean, let that quote wash over you also. She's not, she's not blaming the lie, and she's not blaming the child abuse. She's blaming the fact that she wasn't paid more because of quote-unquote COVID, and then the constant leadership changes are stressful. Not a peep about child abuse. Not a peep. That's why this is a cult. Because they think that what happened is okay. It's not okay. Which means, again, she went along with it, which makes her what? A child abuser. It continues. It says, Bailey Betts, a former instructional strategist at Logan Avenue Elementary, had worked for USD 253 for more than 10 years. Nine as a certified teacher before deciding to leave the district this spring. Betts' husband is a business owner, so after leaving the district, she became a stay-at-home parent and plans to homeschool her children for fear that their education would be subpar under the current leadership. Boom. That's a boom right there. It continues, quote, she said, If this option had presented itself a few years ago, I would have, it would have been a difficult decision. Due to the change in leadership at the school level, as well as the district level, the decision was much easier, Betts said. The list I made for reasons that leaving was the right thing for us outweighed the list by far. I had the hardest time with the thought of leaving a profession I had wanted to be in since I was five, the students and the friends I had made while teaching. Okay. Her quotation right there, too, exemplifies more accurately the real reasons why they leave and why it's hard for even the most moral to leave. It's difficult for the morally sound to leave because you're talking about leaving something that they were innately born to do, myself included. I knew I wanted to be a school teacher when I was in high school. I said, if these dummies can do this and be assholes and get paid, why can't I do it, be a nice guy, do it the right way, be smarter than them, and get paid and make a living? I thought to myself, of course, I can do this, and I can be better at it than they are. Just like this woman, same thing. She knew she wanted to do it, but walking away is tough. It's a hard thing to do. But what she's going to find out is that, again, there is nothing but awakening on the other side of that mountain. On the other side of that hill, it's just pure awakening. It's not going to be easy, but it's awakening nonetheless. And again, it's a very therapeutic approach to make a list of the pros and cons. Why do you want to leave? Why would you want to stay? I mean, that's, a, that's something that they do in therapy. They would, <laughs> they would have people make those lists, and if the reasons for leaving outweigh the reasons for staying, then it's time to go. So good for her. Uh, she said the following. She said, I think many would like to think that many of the resignations had to do with COVID, she continued. Uh-oh. I would say the only thing COVID did for teachers is show them that they are worth so much more than they are shown. I think many found out just how underpaid and overworked teachers are 
and that is just expected. Oh, it's far worse than that. Miss Betts, it's far worse than that. She again doesn't reference child abuse, and that's too bad. She's still not there yet. She's not fully awake yet. It continues, it says, quote, I didn't leave the profession. I left Emporia due to poor leadership from the new principal in a very toxic work school environment, a former USD 253 educator who wished to remain anonymous said. Okay, this is somebody else then. It says, quote, I had been a part of USD 253 for seven years, and it was a great place to be until all of the leadership changes last year. District leadership was one of the main pros to leaving. Another former USD 253 educator who also also wished to remain anonymous added, I loved working under the effective leadership I had in my previous eight years. Quote, I feel that the leadership that I had last year was in the pocket of the superintendent and was truly ill-equipped to do her job, the former educator continued. I feel like because we were asked as a staff that we expected and wanted new administration, she formed her response to meet them. In turn, she did not follow through on many of her statements she made during the candidate process. Many things that administration did didn't do was contributing factors, were contributing factors such as aggressive emails, not checking in on staff that were ill, not out with the loss of a family member or on maternity leave and not acknowledging staff. It definitely felt like there was an in-crowd that knew things before others or they were even told information that didn't pertain to them. Okay. Good Lord. Oh, this is rubbing my scalp here. Uh, this quote is, I could spend an hour on, th- on this paragraph alone. It is a massive misconception among the most brainwashed educators that the role of an administrator is to hold the hand of a teacher. And very commonly, K-12 school teachers will blame administrators for not holding their hands and giving them the verbal and moral support they so desperately need. Ladies and gentlemen, the best educators are the ones who are self-driven, self-motivated, and don't need administrators around. Because those of us, i.e. yours truly, don't think administrators need to exist as a profession. They don't need to be around. They are quite literally useless. They either protect one side, their sycophants XYZ, and of course, the Marxist message that comes down from the top and then they have to go along with it or else they lose their job, or what? Or they have to attempt to work with teachers who don't want people to work with them because they are self-reliant. They are self-sustaining, to use that word. They, they operate on their own and they do a very good job of doing things on their own without any help whatsoever. The needy educator is the worst educator. And this right here is a quote from what I would determine to be a needy educator. They're just needy. We need the support from administration. We need uh, their help, and we need this and that. I've never asked an administrator for help unless it came to them not doing their job and me looking at them and saying, 
do your job. And it usually had to do with discipline. It didn't have to do with anything that was going on in my classroom. It had to do with, you need to follow up on what your code of conduct says you have to do. And by you not doing it is creating a problem for me. That's the bigger issue here. But man, these needy educators, it's, it's embarrassing. No wonder the entire business is crumbling. Because they, they completely misinterpret the role of an administrator and they have no idea that the role of an administrator is actually a useless role. Uh, it continues, it says, Anderson Harder, the um, superintendent, told the Gazette that teachers with concerns should come talk to her. No, don't do that. Don't do that. that uh, that's a trap. I have an open door policy and uh, I'll serve pie because that's an actual thing. It's called pie with the principal. This is, a, this is a gimmick and a tactic that school principals do in order to lure people in with food and then they get them to talk and gossip and then ask them questions about how they feel about the working environment and then they use it against you in the future. It's a trap. Um, it continues. It says, quote, we started listening. We started listening tours last year. Oh, my God. The superintendent started listening tours. We scheduled times that we could go to buildings, and then we just listen to what concerns they want to bring. If superintendents are, are creating listening tours, then they don't know what they're doing, and they aren't leaders, which brings up another point. It drives me nuts when school teachers say the word leadership, and they refer to administration as quote-unquote leadership. I've never done that. There isn't a single administrator that exists on planet Earth that I will ever consider to be my leader. I think not. I'm the leader. I, I have an individual brain. I can figure things out for myself. I, I wouldn't look at them and say, thank you, leader. Take me to your other leader. Never. That, that would never happen. It's never happened. But... God, just the word leadership gets perverted so much. It's disgusting. Uh, they continued, sometimes we hear that people say we're not taking their input, but sometimes we don't see it exactly how they would like to have it. We always take input, she said. The only thing I can say is please come and talk to me. You have other people who say, gosh, I love how much you listen to me, or say thank you so much and you're very accepting. So I think you're just going to have different people have different perspectives, and that's okay. This article's almost done. Um, USD 253 board president Leslie Seeley shared much of the same sentiment and encouraged teachers to speak to her about these issues as well. Quote, We did not hear from a lot of teachers at the end of the year why they were leaving, Seeley said. Quote, I do read every single resignation letter that we get and, res and retirement letter, and I always think that there's some, someone who's going to really tell me what they think, but that's just not ever the case. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Let me, uh, let me inform this liar, this Leslie Seeley. Ladies and gentlemen, in a resignation letter, typically speaking, which is unfortunate, 
you're pressured to write a letter that is very bland. My name is so-and-so. I teach in so-and-so school. I've worked here for XYZ. I'm resigning at the end of the year. Thank you for your time. Please consider this resignation to take effect immediately. Signed yours truly, blah, blah, blah. That's usually how short a resignation letter works. I wish that they were longer and more to the point, as this person apparently says or wishes. Unfortunately, many districts don't accept long resignation letters, and they won't let you write a long one. And in many cases, for those that actually resign, you don't have to write a resignation letter. You're, you're told by your administration in the spring, are you going to come back or are you not? If you check the box that says, I'm resigning, then that's it. You've resigned. There's no letter involved. So here's what I would encourage anybody to do if you're still in the business or even if you're not. If you're a parent listening to this and you're, and you're pulling your children out permanently or you're on the verge of retirement and you've seen all of this BS and you know exactly what's going on, make your resignation letter long and thick. Make sure it includes child abuse, fake COVID, mask wearing abuses, shot taking pressure, etc., etc., etc. Make sure it includes all of that. All of it. Because what is coming down the line here for this line of work is outside the realm of an imagination for the people who still work within. They cannot imagine what's coming. If they sat in a room by themselves and said, and were told, think about all the reasons why American education is going to crumble to the ground permanently, they will not be able to figure it out. They won't. They'll hit on the bullet points that have sort of been hit in this article, but they won't hit the crux of the matter, which is bioweapon poisoning, the fake COVID lie, the purposeful destruction from the people at the top of American K-12 education as we know it, because that's the Marxist plight, is to destroy everything and then replace it with nothing, just misery, so they think. And then, of course, the child abuse that's been rampant throughout this entire two-plus years, if not a century. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. It's been at least a century of child abuse in American K-12 education. Um, it's, it's amazing. Uh, this person continued and they said, quote, the board doesn't hire and fire teachers. She said, we want to hear from them. And if we don't know how they are actually feeling, that's all hearsay bullshit. You do hire and fire teachers. That's your job as a board member. That's exactly what you do. You approve the hiring and firing. You do it without knowing why they're being hired or without knowing why they're being fired or why they're leaving. You don't ask those questions. We've watched the board meetings. We know what happens. Do you accept the resignations of the following people? Say I, and they go I. Do you accept the, the hirings of the following people? Say I, they go I. It's just the trading of robots. These old robots are leaving, and then these new ones are coming in. They never get into why people are leaving, and they really don't, which means, again, we've seen these, these brave people stand up in front of microphones at school board meetings and let them have it as to why they're leaving. 
So I would encourage more of that. Because again, right now, schools all across the United States, ladies and gentlemen, are hurting for teachers. It wraps up by saying the following. Seeley said in hindsight, the board may have needed to insist at least two board members were present on listening tours conducted by the district leadership. That's hilarious. Board members weren't even involved. And then she wrapped up and said the following quote, if they don't feel listened to and their needs aren't being met, then they're not going to stay, Seeley said. No, that's not entirely true either. It's got nothing to do with needs being met other than the fact that school teachers, real good ones, need to be left alone. They need to not be told to abuse children or else they'll lose their job. They need to get degenerate behavior out of these buildings. But ladies and gentlemen, you've heard me say it a million times, that ship has sailed and there's no going back. There's just no going back. Uh, There's one comment to this article. And it says the following at the bottom of this article. And this was from just a couple of days ago. It says, as indicated by our daughter, ESU graduate, now with advanced degree, holding an out-of-state educational position, they said, quote, whoa, they clearly have an administration problem, unquote. We certainly hope the 253 school board will recognize and take care of this problem. Unquote. The problem is bigger than an, administra- an administration problem. You do not have just a personnel problem. You have a brainwashing problem. You have a psychological operation problem, and you didn't even know it. That's the real problem. Let me give you another local example where I live. The school districts in Northeast Ohio all around Cuyahoga County in the Cleveland area are hurting for teachers like you would not believe. The schools, ladies and gentlemen, that are going to close, or in this particular article, as they referenced, are on pause, quote-unquote, are going to be massive. Absolutely massive. There's no way around it. No way around it. And there's no stopping it. They can continue to put Band-Aids on gushing arteries all they want, and then they're going to run out of Band-Aids, and then they're going to tax the taxpayers for levy money to just buy more Band-Aids, and then they're going to keep putting Band-Aids on, but then the lights are going to close and turn off inside those buildings, then they can't pay the bills, then what happens? Next thing you know, there's a chain and a lock around the front door. And then someone else comes in, some hospital or prison or whatever, mental institution, comes in and buys the building and buys the property. And then they get out from underneath it. I can tell you this too. In in watching local school board meetings where I lived, it's evident that this is taking a toll on school board members. You can see it in their faces and you can hear it in their voices, in particular in their lack of participation. There's at least one board member now who used to be very boisterous and a little bit louder and lots of input. Not so. You can tell that they want nothing to do with what's going on right now. Because there's that that hint of doubt that the shots they took are going to kill them, that the masks they imposed were child abuse, and they supported all of it. 
but it's just gnawing at them like sandpaper on their conscience. And, and it's only a matter of time before they just quit and walk away. That's something else that is happening, is that even the hard left that, finds their, that, that, that find their way on to these school boards, they're leaving because they're just tired of it. So are, are parents winning and are, are people winning who are showing up at board meetings and screaming at the top of their lungs? Yes. It's making an impact because it's wearing these old assholes down, which is a good thing. That's a good thing. But what both parties sometimes fail to understand is that it's even another dimension deeper than that, which is that the business will cease to exist. That's hard for people to swallow, which brings me to this. Hang on, let me grab my phone. Okay. This was texted to me yesterday by our Louisiana patriot, who was a guest on the show a while back and was discussing all of the things happening in Louisiana and in the district where they live. They used to be a school teacher, but they still work within the district, within the district office. Here's what they said to me. They said, thought I'd pass this on to you. Um, This is in Ascension Parish on the outskirts of Baton Rouge. And there's an article here. I'm going to yank this up real quick, and it says the following. And then there were uh, more specifics that they provided me regarding what's actually going on in their district. It says the following here, and this comes from The Scoop, Louisiana Save Our Schools. Um, It says this. It says, quote, Ascension Parish is out of control. A A professional development training offered to teachers last year from Safe Zone Project told teachers that they didn't have to tell parents about the student's gender identity or even if they were the subject of harassment. And then it says, quote, really? Since they don't, since when don't teachers inform parents of a potential bullying situation? Don't try to convince us it is about safety. Teachers are already mandatory reporters. So if there is a concern about safety, they should be involved in a mandatory report to the authorities. This is not okay. Okay, first of all, This is interesting because this isn't necessarily even new, but it's taking on the, of course, the sexual tone of, you know, there being more than two genders and the cutting your genitals off and all that other stuff. Uh, the, The business of administrators not reporting bullying of children by fellow peers or even staff members or administrators is not a new thing. This is very commonplace. When I, when I was a school teacher, the, the one thing you would hear in conferences all the time, and, and it wouldn't even matter what level the conference was, excuse me, it, it would always end up being the same sort of phrase or same line where a parent would say, no one told us. An administrator didn't tell us. A teacher hasn't told us. We are in the dark on this particular issue. We had no idea our child was being uh, attacked, bullied, whatever. They weren't saying anything to us because they were apparently afraid. And, of course, we had no idea that teachers themselves were doing the bullying and doing the uh, intimidation and coercion and, and singling them out in XYZ. Um, that's it's very common. But here is one of the slides 
from apparently this professional development training. And it says the following resources. It says all resources will open in a new window. Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, GLSEN. American Library Association's Rainbow Book List. That sounds fun. GSA Network, Welcoming Schools, uh, Teaching Tolerance, It Gets Better Project, The Trevor Project, The Unheard Voices Project, Cyberbullying Research Center, Movement Advancement Project. That sounds nefarious like them all, doesn't it? The Stop Bullying Organization and Teaching Tolerance. Mix it up at lunch day. And then there's a course coordinator by a particular name that I won't mention. All of these NGOs getting involved in American public schools should be all the evidence you need that you as a parent have no say in what goes on. And you're not going to because they don't want you to. Because these school districts are getting kickbacks from these NGOs to do this kind of stuff. Again, it's not a new thing. Um, they have course frameworks here in another slide for grade four social studies. And down at the bottom, it says culminating instructional task. Students may conduct deeper research on course content, complete a project in which, in which they show patterns, trends, or connections among content across the course, or engage in a school community service project, which means become an activist. So you can become an activist as a part of one of the standards for uh for this potential school district apparently or parish it says please consider sending emails to these individuals and complaining and rightfully so um good god all of it is awful social emotional learning and the castle curriculum cultural awareness it just it goes on and on and on Again, if you need another reason, that's the real reason. It's the infiltration of all of these NGOs within these companies, and, or within these organ well, they are companies, but within all of these K-12 school districts that continues to be the problem. Now, the text message continues, and here's what she, what she texted me. She said the following. She said, oh, by the way, uh, down about another 300 students in a particular parish, and 150 teachers. She says that's not including principals, paraeducators, or superintendents, therapists, or others, including bus drivers, etc. She said, I think we have 34 schools total. That's an average of 4.4 teachers missing per campus. She then said, 15 teachers in the last five days. They are talking about going to a four-day a week to cut costs. So they've lost 15 teachers in just the last five days. Here's another element that is, again, a very serious variable that has occurred that, again, no one is talking about. If you take double, triple, or quadruple jabbed school employees, and they go on break for the summer, and you give them two months away from that said environment, if they're traveling or not, 
that doesn't matter. That's still two months of time between when they left and when they might return as, a, as it results to their potential illness. Countless, my point is this, countless teachers got sick and or died over the last two months. That school has been closed for, for summer break. That's happened, which means now, even though back in the spring, much like, as I mentioned in a previous episode with golf courses going private when they used to be public, they want their money up front. So do school districts. They want their money up front, which means when they put in their enrollment for children, they're taking the highest number of enrollment that they have in the springtime, which is when most are there because that's when final exams exist and state standardized tests, if that's still going on, which that would be an interesting question. Is that even a thing anymore? Because you'll remember in the last year or so, they got, a, they got rid of them totally. Um, they take that number of, of high enrollment right then and there, and then they send those numbers to the State Department of Education for funding. The problem, of course, is that over the, over the course of the summer break, you're going to have sick and ill students, some of which are dead because they're jabbed. You're going to have even more homeschooling students and they're not returning. And then the same is true, of course, for staff members themselves, which means the numbers that they've put into the Department of Education to receive the funding to pay these people, uh, those people aren't going to be there. So they've got to do something with it. And they're going to take that money, from my estimation, and do whatever they can to hire temporary. Because it's cheaper to hire uh, temporary than it is hire full-time. But you've Heard me bring that up too. That's a dead end also. That's a dead end. You, you're, again, substitute, substitute teachers don't want to go here. They don't, wanna, they don't want this job. They want nothing to do with it. Um, they said this then. I asked about, well, does a four-day a week, a four-day work week, rather, um, which is a, another trend that's occurring, does that indicate less pay for teachers? And she said no. She said uh, uh, they claim it'll cut costs on electricity and whatever else. Again, that's, you know, that's possible, but they've already got their funding for the year. So going to a four-day a work week, I, I basically just still have a hard time trying to figure out what that, what that actually means and, and why an alleged four-day work week somehow solves their problems or, or cuts costs or saves them money. I, I don't get that. Is it, I mean, would it be possible that a four day a work week with the electricity off and the lights off would somehow save enough money for them to sustain themselves even longer? I, I don't think so, but I, I don't, I don't know. I, I would certainly appreciate more specifics on that. But um, the four day a work week, again, to me, seems like a band aid on a gushing artery. Um, they then said this. They said, after listening to this discussion among district-level peers, I informed them that it's a dying, corrupt system and it's only going to get worse. I may as well have grown three heads with the looks I got from them. It was priceless. Shock and disbelief is what I was met with. They just cannot understand or grasp what's going on nor why. And I said, exactly. I specifically said, quote, exactly 
They can't even see that going to a four-day-a-week schedule is a literal decline and a destruction of their line of work. Remarkable, unquote. That right there should prove it. They've probably never gone to a four-day-a-week work week, and they think that everything is 100% fine. It, It blows me away. Which leads me to this, then. This is just very brief. I'm just going to read this headline because this is indicative of universities, and this is how deep the brainwashing goes, and why, again, these individuals and these institutions can't be fixed. This comes from the Daily Mail, and it's titled, Dozens of Incoming University of Michigan Med Students, Incoming University of Michigan Med Students, which means they're triple jabbed. Storm out of pro-life doctor's keynote address during white coat initiation ceremony, and she didn't even discuss abortion. So the bullet points say, students were a part of a white coat ceremony at the University of Michigan, walked out as Dr. Kristen Collier started her speech. Nearly 400 students previously petitioned to get her removed as the keynote speaker, but their request was denied by the school's dean. Pupils staged the walkout after, after discovering Dr. Collier's pro-life views, calling her appointment as, a, as the speaker inappropriate, quote-unquote. Collier said that she was honored to have been chosen, ignoring the mass walkout. Michigan Medicine, the University of Michigan-owned center, continues to provide abortion services as abortion remains legal in the state. Deep breath. These Satanists, who are these students, who are these just brainwashed demons, have no idea how they've been tricked on multiple levels. They have been tricked quite literally to the vascular level. Again, to be a Michigan medical student, you have got to be double or triple jabbed, if not quadruple jabbed. You have to be. It has to be a requirement to attend. I can't imagine it not being. And then, of course, what are they learning? They're learning that abortion is not murder. They're learning that jabs save lives. They're learning the opposite of everything that is actually true. It's astounding. And they don't stand a chance. These institutions will not survive. The University of Michigan will cease to exist in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, Rome fell for less reasons. Rome fell for less reasons. We've just created more reasons. (laughs) It's incredible. Absolutely nuts. Okay. Uh, Here's a couple other things I have here. There's a story here from AmericaFirstReport.com. And it's some audio from Dr. Jane Ruby regarding the jabs. And this article is by Mary Viarella, titled Shedding 2.0, The Vaxxed Are Infecting the Unvaxxed with Dangerous Graphene Oxide, says Biomedicine Expert. I'm going to play this audio here from Dr. Jane Ruby, and it, she's talking with Dr. Felipe Van Wellburgen, if I'm saying that right, one of the original experts to find damage from the blood due to the Wuhan coronavirus COVID-19 vaccines 
found that unvaccinated individuals have graphene and self-assembling nanoparticles in their blood, a manifestation of shedding from those who took the shots. So here's some of that audio in three, two, one. Dr. Philippe, I, I want to start by, um, first of all, talking about the issue of shedding. You're an expert. You've been working and looking at the blood for a long time. Can we talk a little bit about where this idea came from? We, it came from Pfizer. But let's talk about uh, how that started. We get a variety of patients coming through. We know our patients, and some of the developments were very much out of character. Um, it, it didn't make sense in terms of the history of those patients. Uh, and one of the tests that we run uh, routinely as a diagnostic support tool is red blood cell morphology. It means that um, certain conditions can change the shape of a perfectly good red blood cell from a, a lovely little donut with a dimple to very strange shapes, and it is still that same red blood cell. So that change cell is the smoke, as where there is fire, there is a smoke. The condition is the fire, change cell is the smoke. Change cell does not cause the condition, it is the result of one. Right, understood, understood. Now, you, you, you started looking at the, the blood changes in the jabbed, and, and you, yeah. you got a lot of that evidence. Uh, before we t you're starting to see it in the unjabbed, but before we get to that, I want to talk about this document very briefly uh, that you have, many of us have. It's in Pfizer's own documents, originally leaked, now out there in the public domain, and the two, they established themselves that the two main ways of transferring these injections, whatever the hell is in them, to another person who's not injected were inhalation and skin-to-skin -skin contact. Is that right? It is. And um, this is where the morphology came in because we didn't know what we were looking at. We, we saw, we don't stain these slides. They are... Okay. Um, Smears. They're pure blood smears as is. They don't leave our practice. They travel from where I harvest blood straight to the microscope. We have a look and report what we see. They're unstained. They're not intervened with in any way at all. And I started picking up very unusual, tiny, minuscule structures that I had never seen before. All kinds of abnormalities and damage to the beautiful red blood cells in the jab. We all know that. You know, we have limited time with you today. We're going to do this, by the way, in two parts. I want people to know you're, you're going to want to see the second segment because Dr. Philippe has so much to show us. And I want to start with picture one, because what you're talking about here in the unjabbed, Dr. Philippe, what you started to notice, uh, your unjabbed patients were coming in not feeling well. So you looked at their blood and picture is picture one uh, what you started to see. Um, yes, the unjabbed actually go right back. We, we uh, picked that up quite a while ago, and that fitted the Pfizer document profile like it up because one male patient came to us with, with uh, a neurasthenia with fatigue. He was not jabbed. He didn't leave his home because there was work from home. His wife was jabbed. She left home, came back, and he presented with very similar cells what we see in jabbed patients. And that so was my first indication that there was a leak somewhere, uh, the shedding. Okay, and so in this picture one, 
and actually picture two is very similar, but picture one, there, there are only one or two red blood cells that look like round donuts. The other ones have these sort of spiky changes. Uh, they're not perfectly round. What is that? Well, the, the, um, the first blood cell, the first slide gives you an assembly of reduced graphene oxide. But what you see is a phenomenon that we see in jabbed and in unjabbed patients, mm. where the polarity actually pushes back the blood cells and uh, creates a space. It also creates something which is called um, hypochromia, which is a discoloration of mm. the of the of the red blood cell. The hemoglobin is stripped up, so they become essentially useless. And in the lower half of that first slide, you see microclotting. Yes, that is also something we we check in patients with a D-dimer test. And um, even in asymptomatic patients, we see an elevated D-dimer. Yes. Um, so uh, we yes. run that routinely very well. Now, in I... that second slide, you, you see a, um, a development in that the, the cells that should be donut shaped. I'm, I'm yes. The public, the broader public, they should be like a donut with a dimple in it. Yes. Beautifully. These things are. Uh, quadrangles, they're octagonal, hexagonal. What, what, has, what has happened to those red blood cells that are all octa octagonal and uh, all messed up like that? What are they doing? They've actually been, they've been damaged by uh, the, the spike protein um, mm. and they cannot be restored. You can't, you can't repair red blood cells. So these things are basically lost to us. They're um, lost for 120 days, right? We make new red blood cells every 120 days. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go out on a limb here real quick. First of all, sorry for the audio. Uh, it was a Skype or, Skype or Zoom meeting from over the pond, so the audio was kind of choppy uh, on Dr. Jane Ruby's end. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that that's exactly what happened to me a year ago because I had this nasty cough, for those of you that have been listening to the show since then, for that length of time, 120 days, at least. It was about four months. And uh, yeah, that had to have been it, that I was shed on because I was around the jabbed in a, in a city environment, of course, with 5G pumping everywhere and, and XYZ. Not, clearly not a good thing. Um, it makes me wonder whether or not there are still some lingering effects as a result of that, and whether or not, again, those damaged red blood cells are, are either, I don't know if they're multiplying or what they're doing, but yeah, I mean, this is something that I'm going to continue to keep an eye on. I currently have this chest thing going on, uh, which is interesting. It's not a cough. It's just sort of chest pain. So not trying to be an alarmist or anything or panic anybody. I certainly am not panicked because I have all of the drugs and supplements at my disposal here where I live. But um, yeah, this is something to keep in mind. I've talked about the shedding at, at, great, at great length in the past. There's no doubt that these jabs are shedding via electromagnetism 
and I find it interesting or very difficult to believe that it's through skin to skin contact or through breath. I, um, I find that hard to believe. Electromagnetism, sure. I would believe that. That if you're around abnormal cells that exist within people who are jabbed, then your cells will react in an abnormal way. And then respond in kind. Or in this case, not in kind, uh, if you know what I'm saying. So, yeah, I, uh, stay away from the jabbed is is going to continuously be a thing that we have got to say and and a message that we have to keep moving. This is also again why K twelve schools and universities, with all of the jabbed walking around, is remarkably unhealthy for those not just them, but the people who are unjabbed and did not take these bioweapon shots because even they are getting sick as a result of being around the jabbed. So there you go. Uh, something to keep an eye on, something to pay attention to in your own lives as well, I think, going forward. Let me mention this. This was this will be the last thing. It was an anonymous post on greatawakening.win. I thought it was very indicative of again the larger picture here of what's going on and uh remarkably telling. It's titled Make of This What You Will. It says, quote, "My wife and I needed to order a headstone for her father that passed in February. The guy I talked with at the local monument dealer was literally out of breath." He said business is 600% greater than last year and that his best guess for a completed headstone is a year from now, if paid in full when order is placed. Lots of people are dying now, much younger and unexpectedly. Hmm, they said. What do you think is causing it, I asked. COVID, of course, was his reply. The jab never crossed his mind at all. How could it? That's safe and effective. Without it, things would be much worse. No point in arguing with him. Lots of people just like him. Unquote. And I agree. Again, the, 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 the rationalization for all of this is astounding. And the lack of knowledge among people about what's really going on is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. So. I'm going to do my best to try to detox from this current thing that I've got going on, uh, whatever it may be. I'm not sure. The last thing I'm going to do is go to a hospital. I certainly don't want to do that. Like I said, I feel fine. It's just some sort of uh, weird chest pains. Who knows? Could be a little graphene oxide floating around the chest again. But it, no cough. Everything is good to go. But I got to tell you, these stories of, of people not waking up and and working within these businesses and seeing a massive increase or a massive decrease that would indicate a very telling problem and them not picking up on it is remarkably problematic. And I don't think it's going to get any better. So again, if you needed another reason to stay away from K-12 school environments or universities, uh, I give you Exhibit A. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll catch you on Friday. Take care. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.